Brethren, we are going to have an awful lot of trials and tests in the years to come. I know you all know that. I don't want to dwell on that in a wrong way, but we do need to understand it as a reality. And I'm not sure how going, how soon it's going to come. One of our biggest mistakes in God's church, we're certainly not perfect. Mr. Armstrong made the mistake a number of times, I have too, is setting too many dates. So we can't be sure, but because of the events that we see around us, where the President of the United States has said that same-sex marriage is okay, and now, as Mr. McNair described from the latest news report, they're coming out with a gay Bible, and they're being allowed to do that. You know, if that had happened to the book of of the uh, Islam, the Koran, I should say, over in the Arab world, there would be massive riots. The people who would publish that Bible would probably be beaten up and killed. They are really serious about their religion over there. They don't understand, and I know we shouldn't beat up on people. I'm just saying they take it seriously. But in our nation, we do not take Christianity seriously And we let people make fun of God, make fun of Christ, make fun of the truth, and do almost every rotten, foul, weird, abominable thing you can imagine. And they're already beginning to do many of those things, as you know. So we are near the end time, that's for sure. And so I think we need to understand that the coming days of trial the Bible described and the coming great tribulation is certainly going to come on the generation of my children And my grandchildren may not come on me, but it's going to come on them. And we all need to understand that. All of you young people, it's not going to bypass you. It's coming toward the end of this age, and there is going to be a great tribulation. So you have to think about this. Who will God protect? That's my title today. Who will God protect in the coming times of trial and test And the great tribulation spoken of by Jesus Christ and a number of prophecies all the way through the Bible. Is God real to you? He's not. I know He's not real to a lot of you even in this room and you brethren around the world who hear this. I'm not trying to put down our own church. I'm just saying I sense by the fruits that people are not stirred. God is not very real to a lot of them. He seems way off. And so as these events speed up, And you see the world around you changing in a terrible way, a violent way, even more than it has recently. Maybe God will become more real to you. And I hope that he will for your sake. Doesn't do me any good to say that. If I get too strong, well, I could frighten some of you away. I don't want to do that, but I'd rather do that than to let it just go by and not warn you occasionally. God commands his ministers, lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their sins. And brethren, unless God is real, unless we have a zeal for that God, we are not going to be protected during the coming great tribulation. There's just no way that is not going to happen. And I think we need to realize that. Do you really want His divine protection for you? Do you want His divine protection for your little children? I can't expect God to protect all my grown children. They're on their own now. My son Jim is on his own and Mike and Liz and Rebecca And David and Jonathan, they're all grown. So I know that God will protect my grandchildren and great-grandchildren to the degree that their parents are close to God and to the degree that they themselves, if they're already teenagers and up above, would respond, of course. That's partly up to them, depending on your understanding. 
depending on your level of maturity. Turn to Luke chapter 21, brethren. Luke 21 is describing our time here. And I know that most of you know that this is the same as Matthew 24, but a slightly different version of that great prophecy. He describes when, verse 26, men's hearts will be failing them for fear, for the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming with a cloud and great power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, verse 28, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. You're not to cower in fear. You're to lift up your heads if you're a Christian. You'll know that your redemption is near. Christ is coming, and you have something wonderful to look forward to. But the people of the world are not going to be happy. They don't know that. They're going to fight Christ. And even very weak Christians are going to be scared. They'll wonder what's going on. I wonder what I should have done that I haven't done and so on. And he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees when they are already budding. You know that yourselves that summer is near. So likewise, when you see these things happening... And we see many of these things beginning to happen. They're not happening full scale yet. But the false prophecies and the drought, famine, disease epidemics and so forth are beginning to happen. We know that. And as they get worse, we'll see that it's getting very near. So likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 32, this generation when all these things start to happen, will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. Brethren, is your heart weighed down? Some of you here in this room, some of your brethren listening to this around the world, wherever you may be, in Cape Town or Johannesburg or Perth or Sydney or Brisbane, Australia, or over in London, England, all these other places around the world. Many of our brethren have these normal things. You kind of just get involved in your daily life, and you don't take seriously what's happening. You're not watching and praying. You're not on fire for God. You get weighed down by the cares of the world and with carousing, drunkenness. Some get drunk or they just drank too much. And cares of this life involved in their family, involved in their normal day-to-day job, their television shows and all the rest. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare, a little trap that snaps. My father, when he was a young man, had a muskrat trap line, and he went up and down Turkey Creek and set these traps And that sounds bad, but millions of people were doing those things back in those days, and there was not a shortage of animals back then. And he was getting the muskrat furs to sell as a high school boy to make money. And the little muskrat would come along and sniff, and all of a sudden, bang, it's too late. He's trapped, and then he's killed, and his hide is taken. And women wear muskrat coats and jackets and all that kind of thing. That's going to happen to the world, brethren, They're going to be going along and say, well, I don't know. Nothing much is changing. As you know, they talk about the frog in the pan. And if you have a frog in a pan and you warm up the water just a little bit, then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then just a little bit more, the frog does not understand what's happening until it's too late. 
that same thing happened to millions of people around the world who may have been Christian at one time or the other, or certainly thousands, I should say. It happened to thousands of our brethren and worldwide as they began to change. They said, just a little clarification, just a little modification, and slowly but surely the heat was going to get hotter and hotter and hotter toward hell, frankly, (laughs) that is grave, destruction, cut off from God, but because it happened so gradually, they didn't realize it. And God probably is going to cause a lot of these things to happen very slowly and surely. Then near the end, a lot of things are going to speed up. We know that. But so far, it's been just a little bit more. It's not exciting yet. I've been waiting for it, brethren, for 63 years. And I prayed to God for help and guidance and understanding. And I was on fire in those days. And God hasn't brought about the end yet. But I see it's very, very close, more than I have ever seen before. And when the final part comes, he does indicate suddenly and quickly. So the last two or three years are going to bang, bang, bang like that. And people who are not watching and praying and not in the habit of studying this book to really understand what it says. And their minds are kind of off on something else. And they let their minds drift. They let themselves get their feelings hurt. They let their lusts take over. And they get in wrong attitudes. It may be too late. So it's now is the time to wake up and examine yourselves. It will come a snare on all who dwell on the earth. Watch, therefore, Jesus said, and pray always. Don't pray once in a while, brethren. Try to learn as a habit to pray three times a day, like David did like Daniel did, as his habit was. He prayed three times a day, and God gives us that example. You don't have to pray for an hour three times a day, but you can pray 15 or 25 minutes in the morning before anything else interrupts. Then you can pray for just two to five minutes at lunch to get to a private place if you have to stand up holding onto the doorknob in the bathroom. I've done that. Find some place. You don't have to be on your knees. I think it's better to pray standing up. God talks about that, where you're, in a sense, honoring God, but your posture even, you're seeking God. And then at night, you can get down before you go to bed and pray another five or seven minutes. And pretty soon, you prayed half an hour. Then later, maybe you get up to 40 or 50 minutes a day talking to God, asking God himself for understanding, for wisdom, and for his spirit, his power, his guidance. But talk to God and drink into this book and feed on it, and God will become more real. Watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy. I don't think we read that part as much as we should. We need to pray that we may be counted worthy. We're not perfect, but are we really seeking God? Are we really trying to be clean? Are we really trying to honor the God that gives us life and breath? Or are we just showing up in church and it doesn't make much difference that we may be counted worthy to escape? There is a way of escape. This is one way to that. One of the script, many scriptures that talk about it, that counted worthy to escape all these things will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And I want to say right here, As Mr. Armstrong said so often, the Bible interprets the Bible. So I'm not trying to say that everyone who's going to watch and pray is going to have nothing happen to them. I'm sure Stephen was one of the men really close to God. 
And even as he was dying as a martyr and the rocks were hitting his head, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He prayed to Christ right then. Those are the words coming right out of the depths of his heart because he worshiped Christ. He adored Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell asleep. God does let some be martyrs. This is talking that the Bible indicates, if you put it all together, the vast majority of those who are watching and praying, the vast majority of those who are Philadelphia Christians are going to be protected. Maybe I won't be. Maybe I'll die earlier, just of natural causes of old age. Maybe some of you who are not quite as old will be thrown in jail and beaten. Is that unusual? No. Peter was, Paul was, all 12 apostles were. Barnabas was, Timothy and Titus, and so on. We will have trials and tests, but the majority of the brethren will not have to go through that kind of thing if they're watching and praying. And even those men, of course, did not have to die prematurely in most cases. Those men who were really close to God. So God will bless us. God will protect us if we do our part. And even those who have to go through trials, he will take us into his everlasting kingdom, and we will live forever. Some of you have heard me say this, so I don't want to bore you, but I kid around with Mr. Ames and Dr. Renale and our fellow ministers and say, well, I, they ask me how I am. Well, I feel worse today, or I've had this problem, you know, as I get older. But I have a secret plan. I have a secret plan to live forever. And I think you do too. <laughs> we all have a plan to live forever. And we will live forever in the kingdom of God if we do our part. And we want to really have faith in that. But let's be sure that we do our part and that we're counted worthy to escape these things. Let's go now at this point back to Ezekiel, brethren. Turn to the book of Ezekiel here in your Old Testament. And here's something that reveals part of the mind of God and how he's going to act in these coming trials. This is God's mind in print, the Bible. This is the way God thinks. This is the way God acts. Notice Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. He says in verse 13, Son of man, when a land, it doesn't say just Israel, when a land sins against me, now, everyone in the world doesn't necessarily know God, so he probably is talking more about those who know better. But when a land sins against me, by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off a supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. And we know those same things are mentioned in Matthew 25, Luke 21, Mark 13, and the other prophecies of the time of the end that's just started to come on us. Verse 14, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, three of the greatest prophets of all time, though they were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says Almighty God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it and make it so desolate so that men may not pass through it because of the beasts. Even those these three men were in it as I live, says the eternal God. They would deliver neither sons nor daughters. I can't deliver my sons. I can't deliver my daughters. I can't deliver my grandchildren unless they happen to be living with me and they're still young enough to escape. If I were there, then they would probably go to a place of safety if I did. 
but they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Only they would be delivered and the land would become desolate. You can't deliver others. And you young people who are in your teens or 20s, you deliver yourself. Just because your parents are in the church, that doesn't mean that you're okay. It just does not. Each one of us is judged by the great judge. He knows how much understanding we have. He knows what we ought to be doing with that understanding. He knows the games that people play in their own minds. In First Peter chapter 4, turn now with me back to the New Testament again, near the end of the New Testament. First Peter, if you would, chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. God says through Peter, Beloved, do not think that it's strange concerning the fiery trial. There's going to be a fiery trial. All the Bible shows that clearly at the time of the end. Don't think that's strange. Don't think it's strange, brethren, if in a few years we have some rocks thrown through our office building or this or that. Some of us are beat up and thrown in jail. If I'm thrown in jail or Mr. Ames or any of us here who are ministers, say, oh, well, God's given up on them. Oh, really? That means he gave up on Peter and Paul and James and John. He gave up on Christ. Christ was thrown in jail, so to speak. He was kept captive there for a while overnight. No, that's not it at all. God says these trials would come. So there is going to be a kind of fiery trial which is to try you, to test you, as though some strange thing happened. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of Christ and of God, I should say, rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. You glorify God by putting faith in God and obeying him. He says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if you suffer because you've been preaching God's truth or doing God's work and obeying God, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God on this matter, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Brethren, that judgment's got to begin right here in this building with all of you and with God's true people around the world. Judgment is going to begin at the house of God. And it, if it begins with us, first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? They're going to be even worse off, indicated. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, don't think because you come to church and part way serve God, you're way in a place of safety already. No, you're right in mercy in God's church, but you might be here by the skin of your teeth, so to speak. You might be on the edge of the church, and you might be one that God is watching and being sure you learn to put your whole being in God's church and God's work. You don't want to play along the fringe. You don't want to be a fringer all the time. You don't want to be just on the edge of outer darkness all the time. That's not what God wants. God, as I've said before, wants to see how close we are to Him. God does not want to make us spirit beings in His kingdom and give us tremendous power for eternity until He knows exactly where we stand. He wants us to be right in the center of His will. We want, he wants us to be right in the center of his church. He wants us to be right in the center of his work. That's obvious through hundreds of statements in the Bible. 
If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. We have a faithful creator, brethren. He will never give up on us. But many of us in one sense, by the way we act, give up on him. We don't really believe him. We tend to water down what he says. We get around what he says. And we must not do that for our own good. Let's turn to Luke 14. Here's a very famous passage, of course, that is read nearly every time we counsel someone for baptism and should be. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Great multitudes went with Christ, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, and as we've explained that Greek term, the experts all say that it's a comparative term. God doesn't tell us to hate anybody, but loves less, loves less by comparison, his father, his mother, his wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life. You've got to love your own life less than you love Jesus Christ. Christ is perfect. He emptied himself of divine power and majesty and glory to come here and die for you. And Mr. Wakefield was explaining a little bit of that, what he went through. Because God does love. God is love. And Christ is God. And Christ is love. And they were doing everything they could and still are to bring millions eventually into their family, into their kingdom, to share eternity with them. They're not selfish. They want to build a complete family of human beings who would become future members of the God family. Glorified spirit beings sharing eternity with the Father and with the Son, where you have millions of friends to interact with throughout all eternity to conquer the universe. And everything indicates that. Of the increase of His kingdom, there will be no end. We're going to have exciting things to do throughout the whole universe later on. So we need to understand that. If you love father, mother, your own life more than Christ, you cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross, if you're not willing to go through your time of suffering, if you're not willing to go through trials and tests and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether it has sufficient to finish it? You've got to decide, are you going to give up the money, the friends, do the sacrifice to finish this job of becoming a Christian or not? Verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has in your heart and mind, you forgive all that you have. You give it all up or forsake it. He cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, what good is it? It is neither fit for the land nor for the manure pile. Not even good for the manure pile of that zest, that zeal has gone out of the salt. So salt is good, but if it's lost that, it is not good for anything. But men throw it out. He who has an ear, uh, let him hear. And I hope all of us hear. We've got to be right in the center of God's will in order to be those people that are going to be protected in the years just ahead. And we really need to understand that. And I hope that all of us do. And that we can begin to give our lives to God without reservation. I myself baptized probably hundreds of Ambassador College kids when they were just 18, 19, 21 years old. 
And I baptized hundreds of others across the United States and Britain on baptizing tours, primarily in the United States and one in South Africa as well. Many of those college kids later fell away. The ones I baptized, sorry to say that, the ones Mr. Armstrong baptized, Dr. Hay, our early ministers, we know that. They went right along with Worldwide. Some of them even fell away before that because of trials and tests and because of human selfishness and vanity and the cares of this world. So we have to understand that. We've got to realize that many of the kids then, and I've told you this before, but I thought about it. I prayed about it. I've hurt because of it. They were 18 to 21 or 23 or 4-year-old young people. They got dunked in the water to join the club. They thought we had this club and they could date this girl. She was baptized and they weren't. I don't think they were all trying to do some evil thing, looking back on it. Most of them were sincere, but they just didn't fully get it. That was kind of the way to go. That was kind of the thing to do, to say, well, I believe this, you know, I'm sorry, and then you get dumped in the water. They weren't terribly sorry. They did not beg God for forgiveness and really meant it. They did not make a covenant with their creator at baptism and bury the self and give their life unreservedly to God. And when trials came along, they fell away by the hundreds And people in worldwide church who were baptized fell away by the thousands. They had not been, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, conquered by God. We have some church members that are barely in the church with the skin to their teeth. We have other church members that are seemingly okay. We don't know. Then we have other church members. And I used to say it. I told my wife about it. I told others about it occasionally. Not much. I really didn't in those days. It was very quiet. But I perceived that some of the leading men, great men, evangelists, other men you've heard of, great in ability or titles, I sensed that they were going to fall away. Not just one or two, but five or ten. I could see by their fruits that they were playing games. Some of them were very political. Some of them were just weak physically. I sensed that. And it happened to every single one. They were not in the center of God's will. I didn't condemn them. I just realized that was probably going to happen. And I I just watched and hoped it wouldn't, but it did. People that are not in the center of God's will are vulnerable because Satan is going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, brethren. And if you're not in the center of God's will and you're not really going after God with your whole heart, Satan can get at you very easily. He really can. And you have to understand that. So I hope that you will for your good, not my good. I hope that you will. And I pray that you will. So many people in the church have not been wholehearted in their repentance and baptism, their commitment. And many in the church are watering down the basics of what it means to be a Christian. When you have been baptized and given your life to Jesus Christ and say, God, I have buried myself. When you said, I love you, Christ, more than I love father or mother or wife or children or my own life also, you think you'd do everything. But we have a number sitting right here and others in the church who are not here today and others in the church around the world because I know human nature. I've been in the church long enough to figure that out. And I talk to our ministers 
not as much as Dr. Vanell does, but I talk to them regularly, three or five of them out there scattered around the world, and ask them how's it going and what are the problems. Human nature carries right on. One of the big problems, I want to talk about one of them, and a number of them, so you understand it. These are not the only problems. We have many who are very weak in keeping God's Sabbath and worshiping their Creator on the Sabbath day. How dare they do that? Here they've given their life to God, but we find that they have parties Friday night and stay up late, or they go out early right after church and go into some kind of a bar-type atmosphere. It's not a sin to go out and eat. We've said that. But if you go out in a wrong place, in a wrong attitude, atmosphere, that's not right on God's Sabbath day. Many watch television shows on the Sabbath day. Many go to movies or see movies on TV, which is more common. Many have Friday night, they have more time, so they drink a lot of extra booze. They booze it up on Friday night more than most of the other nights because they're relaxed. They don't have to go to work the next day. Do you do that? Does that fit your profile? It does for some of you. And I hope you understand that is not keeping God's Sabbath day at all. That's not the way God describes his holy Sabbath. And remember, of course, he tells you not to work on the Sabbath day. He tells you it's a holy convocation. But also, as you know, back here in Isaiah, I want you to turn here with me. I hope it's a familiar passage. In Isaiah 58 and verse 13, Isaiah 58, verse 13, God tells us, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, we eat out on the Sabbath at the feast. That's not our pleasure. You have to eat. And once in a while, even during the year, you may take someone out on the Sabbath or entertain someone where it's very difficult to otherwise or things like that. But you do it in a place that is where it's not loud music, it's not a bar-like atmosphere, and you make sure that your conversation is a godly conversation. Your purpose is godly. And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor Him. Do you want to honor God on the Sabbath? Remember, He's your Creator. He gives you every breath of air you breathe to worship Him on the holy Sabbath. Honor him, not finding your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. I've been with people myself in the past, not recently, but they obviously were not speaking the words they ought to speak on the Sabbath. They weren't cussing or telling dirty jokes, but they spent a great deal of time talking about fishing or hunting trips or ball games or stuff like that, and not trying to consciously guide the conversation toward prophecy that what's happening today or the work or people's lives being changed or something worthwhile. It was worldly stuff because their mind is on the world and their mind did not seem to be conscious that it was God's holy Sabbath. This is holy time. God made this time from Saturday evening sunset, Friday evening sunset to Saturday evening sunset, holy time. And brethren, please, for your good, think about it that way. Worship God on His Sabbath day. And we can't all do it tonight, I guess, in certain bad weather here, but out in Arizona and parts of California and Florida and later on here, go outside at night. Look up at the stars. Literally do that. That's been a great help to me through the years, just to literally do that and see the power and the majesty of the creation out there. 
and take a walk late Sabbath evening and see the breeze gently blowing through the trees and the birds flying in the air. The Creator, the one that as above all of us, God in heaven created that. He's the one that gives you the breath of air you breathe. Every good and every beautiful thing comes from Him. Every beautiful child, every beautiful young woman, every beautiful piece of music, every beautiful majestic thing you see in the heavens. Every good and every perfect gift is from God. And He's got a lot more where that came from. He is God. He's our Father. Worship Him. Worship Him consciously on the Sabbath day. So you're to honor Him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. He'll give us blessings. And the ultimate reward he even promised to Abraham and Isaac and then to Jacob was eternal possession of this earth, the whole earth. And by implication in the New Testament, of course, Hebrews chapter 2 and elsewhere, the whole universe. So we're going to have the heritage of Jacob. The mouth of the eternal has spoken. That's what he has promised. And God keeps his promise. He will do that. We know he's kept so many other promises and he will do that. Another thing we need to think about very deeply, brethren, and I hope all of you can talk to your friends who may not be here. They need to understand this. I hope everyone can get this sermon. But some are very weak on tithing and on giving generous offerings to God. That may sound selfish, but again, I'm 82 and a half years old. I'm not going to be here to get rich. That's not my purpose. I could go out and we could have way back then. Virtually all my friends, we were in the same gang. We had the same education. I was on the, in the National Honor Society and had reasonably good grades. I could have made a good career out there just like they did. And they all ended up making more money than I did for years. Many of them still are if they're still working as doctors and lawyers and and accountants and all that kind of thing. We're not here for that purpose. This money that you give is going to go into the work of God. And I guarantee with all my heart, I'm trying to put it more and more. And Mr. Ames and I are guilty, as Mr. Davis has told us. He said, when you get more money, why, Mr. Meredith, the name put it right in television. And Mr. now that he's here, Mr. Wakefield's beginning to lose his hair, too, as we put the money right in television and spend it all up. We're trying to reach this world with all our hearts. And we're putting more and more of it into the Internet. And we are now have over 400,000 now in our subscribers to Tomorrow's World magazine. That's growing again, thankfully. The churches are growing. The impact of the work is growing. But the main thing is, brethren, you are honoring God. It's not your money anyway if it's a tithe. I know you don't understand that, some of you who are new. But you read what the Bible says, you read our booklet, you read Mr. Armstrong's old booklet on that, very powerful, but very, very true. Notice what it says here in 2 Corinthians, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Here is a principle, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We use it in the offertory quite often, but turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. But this I say, Paul writes, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. In other words, if you're generous with God, God himself, the creator of the governor of the universe, will be generous with you. That's what he says. 
Be generous. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not people who say, well, I've got to pay that tithe. Or I've got to give my tithe. It is not your tithe that belongs to God. I'll explain that in a minute if you don't understand it. And God is able, you see, if you're a cheerful giver, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things have an abundance for every good work. In other words, God will bless you. God will give you the breaks. He won't make you a millionaire. The whole story in the Bible and the New Testament shows he did not, but he took care of their needs. He will bless and he will guide them and be with them if they're generous with him. If you're generous with God, God will be generous with you, brethren. Turn back now to Malachi, uh, the last book in the Old Testament, of course. Turn here to Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, and most of again familiar with this. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. God inspired Malachi. In fact, God is speaking here. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. God is speaking to our nation. And you look earlier, speaking to the people of Israel, Jacob. You have robbed me, God tells our people. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And brethren, when you look up the law of tithing, the whole thing indicates that everything in the universe and certainly everything in this world belongs to God. God gives you your life. God gives you every breath of air you breathe. He gives you every drop of liquid that you drink. God gives you your house. He gives you your food and clothing. He gives you your wife. He gives you your clothing. He gives you your car. He gives you everything. And if you're serving him, he gives you so many good and wonderful things. They belong to him. They do not belong to you. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the food. He created the sun that brings forth the food out of the ground. He created the soil. He created the rain that has to water the the crops to make them bloom. He is the one that gives everything. It belongs to him. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. It belongs to God Almighty. He shares it. He gives 90% to us. If we will give 10% to him, which we owe him. And then he tells us if we will give offerings... And a number of times he indicates generous offerings above our regular tithes to the degree we can. And we know it may be a very small degree. He talks about the widow, you know, who just gave a widow's mite. Probably she'd already tithed knowing her attitude, but she just gave every penny she had on that day. And no one explained that to Christ, I don't think. There's no indication by being God and having the mind of God. He supernaturally knew that. He said she gave everything she had. And put it, and it was able to be seen back there. It's not a secret. God let Christ and the others see what was being given there in the temple. So they knew that. Everything. We can't all do that. God does not want me to give everything I have, and he does not want you to give everything you have. And so less rare circumstances, very rare, because you have your family, you have your responsibility. But we don't all have to have two televisions. We don't all have to have two cars. We don't all have to have all the stuff the Americans think they ought to have. Having lived four years of my adult life in Europe, I realize that most people there 
and most people around the Middle East, which I've seen, and Africa I've seen on two or three different trips to Africa, they don't begin to have the things we have. We don't need the things we think we need. We could tighten our belts if we're really trying hard to get the work of God going. We're going to give of ourselves. And so God tells us here that we are stealing if we don't even pay the basic tithe. So he said, you've robbed me and tithes and offerings. Not just tithes, but offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, he commands, that there may be food in my house, and prove me now in this, says the Eternal of hosts, for I will not open, or will I not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And he has blessed our nation in that way in the past. We know that. Everyone was not a millionaire, but we had food coming out our ears. We had more than enough clothes. We had more than enough everything. The most lower middle class and even working class Americans had more stuff than most people all over the face of the earth. We were very, very greatly blessed because of Abraham's obedience. But now as we turn more away from God, he's taking all that away. I know they weren't all tithing back then, but many millions of Americans did believe in tithing in the old days, even in the Baptist church and other churches of the world. And to the degree that anyone obeys God's way, they're blessed. Frankly, they're blessed to that degree. They may not have been given full understanding, but I just repeat this again. To the degree that anybody of any religion, whether they're Buddhist or Shinto or whatever, to the degree that they obey the will of God, God's laws, they're blessed. It's just automatic. He may call them later to a full understanding. But if they live that way of life, that way of life is a blessing. So if you're giving to God blessing, he will give generously to you. Now, Proverbs, turn there with me if you would. Proverbs chapter 11. Let's turn back to the book of Proverbs now. Chapter 11. And notice what God says back here. He says in verse 24, <clears throat> there is one who scatters. In other words, he's apparently giving and giving what he has away, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right. As we say, there are people that are tightwads, <laughs> not just giving God money, but, you know, sharing it with their family, sharing it with their loved ones, sharing it with their neighbors, sharing it with their community. They're tightwads. And what happens to him, to the tightwads? So they are not blessed because of that. But it leads to poverty. God may bring them down. The generous soul will be made rich. Someone who's generous will normally be made rich himself. And he who waters, if you help others, is the law of reciprocity. And God, they will tend to give back to you and God will guide it that way. He who waters will be watered himself. So there's a law there to be generous, and God will bless, and even circumstances often, because people around see that you've given to others, and when you get in trouble, they'll help you. And a third area where we need to examine ourselves in this church here and in God's church around the world is the attitude of judging and condemning one another. Many people are constantly judging and condemning one another, and I think you've got to really understand that, brethren, and stop that. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And I know that some are judging each other about 
whether they some have like to eat vitamins a lot and natural foods, and they condemn others for not eating enough and natural foods. And some then are more strict and, and trial-rearing and condemn those who don't follow their exact pattern. Then there are others who are homeschooling, and the non-homeschoolers make fun of those who homeschool, and the homeschoolers are very self-righteous and condemn those who don't homeschool. Well, brethren, nearly all of these things and other related things are a matter of subjective understanding. There's some of the women who really need to work during the day, and they don't have an opportunity to homeschool. And if that's the case, they may need to, uh, you know, have a, 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 a person take care of their child, or they may take care of the child themselves, and they're, or let their child go to a public school. And then there are others who have the chance and the people around them to get a group together and have homeschooling or have a whole homeschooling sort of a league, even outsiders doing it, and they can do that. God doesn't command one way or the other. That's the point. The ones who homeschool are not more righteous than the ones who don't homeschool. And the ones who don't homeschool are not less righteous than the ones who do. Now, there may be cases where that's true, but there are other cases that it's not true at all. And it's not up to each one of you to decide that pattern or that, that situation. If there is a problem, the minister ought to be involved and get to it. And our ministers would tend to have, and God shows that, the mind of Christ. But normally those things are subjective. It's not something each one of us is to judge the other about. But there's this attitude of judging and judging one another about things like that. And brethren, that is wrong. It's wrong, 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 judging and condemning one another. Now turn with me at this point back to Matthew. Here's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew Chapter 7, Jesus Christ said, Judge not that you be not judged. And some of the translations have it because it could be either way. Condemn, condemn not that you be not condemned. It's that attitude, that approach to judging and putting down or condemning. For with what judgment, listen, you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use will be measured back to you. Maybe you're righteousness is shown more in homeschooling and things like that, but then maybe you have other problems that the neighbor doesn't have, and maybe the neighbor's more righteous than you are in other ways, in loving people, serving people, forgiving people. So it's not up to you to judge the other person. That's God's responsibility. And if it's something serious or hurting others, the church would get involved. But even we don't try to get in and decide exactly how much each one ought to give in tithes and offerings. It's not our business. We don't get in and try to decide exactly whether you ought to homeschool or not homeschool. That's not our job. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Your brother has a little problem with something? Well, you're not to concentrate on that. If it's something serious, bring it and go to your brother about it and then bring it to another, or then bring it to the church. If it bothers others in a serious way, let the church decide. But it's not your job. You're not the judge. Do not look at the speck in your brother's eye. Do not consider the plank. There's a great big two-by-four in your eye. And frankly, some people are so quick to judge others. We've had people in the church who judge women. Their skirt was a little bit short, their hair was a little bit short, or a young man comes in, and for a few months his hair is a little bit long. That is an absolutely tiny thing, brethren, 
compared to hate and vanity and lust and murder and adultery. Those are little, tiny, tiny things. And if, boy, someone came in and still smoked for a while, you'd think, wow, they're ready to go to hell. No, they're not. Mr. Herbert Armstrong explained again and again, and I've heard him talk about it five or 15 times, how he baptized people a number of times who were still smoking as long as he was sure, as best he could ascertain. They really wanted to quit. He felt they would quit after they had the Holy Spirit. You think, boy, that's really awful. What could be worse than smoking? I'll tell you what could be worse than smoking. The young men here in the church who mentally undress the girls who have adultery in their mind. That is adultery. That is adultery. That's much worse than this little tiny damaging your body because those of you who eat too much, that hurts your body probably just as much as smoking would. You may die of a heart attack or a stroke or any number of things just by eating too much. There are all kinds of things like that. So just understand that. That's not your judge job to judge people on those things. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the plank speck out of your eye and look, a plank, a great big two-by-four is in your eye, and God sees that. He sees that hate and that self-righteousness and that thing where you're so self-righteous and you know everything and you've got to judge everybody. No, you don't know everything. It's not your job to judge everybody. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So God warns us on that. We are not to go around judging our brethren about comparatively little things. And if it's a serious thing, and you see your brother is drinking a lot and beginning to get drunk on a regular basis, then go to him and say, John, you're getting drunk too much, and I love you. It's going to take you out of the kingdom. Please stop and talk to him about it. If he or George or Jim or whatever his name is keeps on, then bring it to the church. That is, you could take one or two other leading brethren with you, not his buddies, but some others. So it's not just you and him. They can't say, well, John, you know, whatever your name might be, Rod or George doesn't like me. No, it's not just between you and him type thing. It's between two or three brethren. Then they understand And then he can respond to them. If he still won't quit, he's beginning to get drunk on a regular basis. And you know it's going to wreck his marriage. It's going to make wreck his job. It's going to wreck his spiritual life. It's going to keep him out of God's kingdom. And you love him. Then bring it to the church. And the ministry will come in at that point and ascertain. And if that's the case, which it probably is, but then then we can talk to him and say, you're becoming an alcoholic And we'll help you. We'll counsel you. We can help guide you even toward professional counseling with that kind of thing if you need it. And if you keep on, you will not be in God's church. We can't have practicing drunkards in the church. We can't have practicing fornicators in the church and will not. So bring it to the church and the church will deal with it. And you know what other scriptures like Matthew chapter 18 tell us about that. So be sure that you take care of your need, but don't judge your brother about all these things because that is even worse often the thing he's doing. Learn to love the other person and not to appoint yourself their judge. You are not their judge. And don't try to make yourself their judge. Another big area we need to work on, brethren, and this is powerful, 
And this began back in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And I've often said the same thing happened with faith. Because after Mrs. Armstrong died, and I lived through this, I saw it. I don't need anyone to explain it to me. But Mr. Armstrong began to go off more and more with Stan Raider on trips, and he was gone, and others came in. I won't name them. began to kind of water things down. One of them said, we got to loosen things up around here. And the kids got the picture right. Well, instead of going to the afternoon service in Pasadena, as was normally prescribed, whole gobs of them, dozens of them went to the morning service. And right after the last song, instead of visiting with the brethren for an hour or so, they headed toward the door, changed clothes as quick as they could, jumped in their little car or pickup truck, headed toward Santa Monica Beach, and they were down there drinking beer and listening to rock music right along with the kids from UCLA. That attitude began to set in right in Pasadena. We must not let that happen here. Not that we want to be self-righteous, just be careful of all that kind of thing. We've got to be sure that we can do things the right way and honor God and respect the ministry. Those who are faithful to God, Mr. Armstrong had taught a different way, and those under him did not respect that. But that then took away the respect of all the other brethren for the ministry. Then we had some of the high-level ministers have personal problems, moral problems, and so the attitude of respect for the ministry, the attitude of faith in God began to go down. The number of healings for hundreds of people in the church began to go down. They went hand in hand. There is an attitude of deep respect for the ministry, and that then transcends right on up and becomes also deep respect for God himself. So you have to think about there is a connection there. But we do not have the respect for the ministry that we used to have or the certainly the ones who are going to be in God's kingdom ought to have. And that doesn't hurt me. It hurts you. Most of you respect me because I'm off in my office, my ivory tower. I don't deal with you all day. I'm just saying it hurts you. You won't be in God's kingdom if you have that thing hurt you and you water things down in your life. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 now, brethren, in your New Testament here. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I want to begin reading Ephesians 1 verse 19. He talks about the exceeding power of God, which he worked in Christ. Verse 20, Ephesians 1, verse 20, he worked this mighty power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. God glorified Christ because Christ is God. And we are to worship Christ just as we worship God. And God tells us right there in the fifth chapter of John that Christ is our judge and we are to honor Christ as we honor the Father. Read it. John, the fifth chapter because he also is God. He's been put above all principality and power and might and every name. And he put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is in charge of the church over all. He's supposed to direct me. And if I lead the church in a terrible wrong way, he will remove me. 
He will, brethren. He will remove me, which wouldn't be too difficult in my age, you see. But he could be, if I were, I were just 32 rather than 82, he could say wouldn't have any problem. He would remove me. He will remove a minister after a time who waters things down. He will take care of it. I've seen that. I've had to wait for a while. He allows bad guys to go on for a while, but always without me naming names. They get their due. They do get their due, and they're out. And they're on the outside looking in. And many of them suffer, and they suffer often premature deaths and all that kind of thing. So we have to understand, Christ is the head over all things to the church. He's the head over the church as a whole. He's the head over the editorial and TV department. He's the head over the the editorial department. I mean, he's the head over the business office. He's the head over church administration. He's the head over the summer camps, the youth program. Think about it. Christ is head over all. Does Christ let Mr. League make some mistakes occasionally and being head of the counseling program here? Yes, he makes some mistakes. Does he let me make some mistakes? Yes, he does. They let Mr. Ames make mistakes, Dr. O'Neill. But overall, we are teaching the truth, we are doing the work, and we're trying to be faithful in that, and I think most of you know that. I know Dr. Germano was gone from us for a while and came back, and he said a few weeks ago, just a couple of weeks ago, not that long, it was very thoughtful of him and his situation because he'd been in the work since 1959. Having been in the work since 1959, he said, I think we have here the most clean, wholesome, dedicated leadership that I've ever seen in the church. That's what he said. And I think that's true. And if I were to die tomorrow, it's still that way. We have Mr. Ames. We have Dr. Winnell. We have other leading men here. Mr. Rod McNair, who gave the announcements. We have Mr. Wally Smith and other young men coming along out in the field. And we have Jonathan McNair. We have Sheldon Munson, who's over the youth program, a very dedicated person. We have wonderful regional pastors like Mr. Rand Millich across the United States, wonderful international directors like Mr. Gerald Weston, dedicated, solid, balanced. Are they perfect? No. But we have that overall. Nevertheless, brethren, you need to understand that Christ is in charge. He is in charge, and show that respect to those offices as long as the truth is being preached, as long as the work is being done, and as long as the government of God is still being taught and practiced, not perfectly. We don't preach the gospel perfectly. We don't do the work perfectly. But overall, we're trying hard, and we're doing it more fully than any other group on earth, and I think most of you know that. If you know it's done somewhere else better, you should go there. And I mean that. I don't think it is. But you've got to figure it out. If it's being done overall, then we are God's servants at the end of an age, and Christ is the head of the church. So he will guide these things that you're judging your brother about. Don't spend your time judging your brother. And don't have this lack of respect for the ministry and learn to honor the leaders that Christ has put in his church. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, turn there if you would with me, 1 Corinthians, and I think most of you know this because I've talked about it so often, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, 
We're training right now to be leaders and kings, and we're to learn to practice that in the church so we can be fit to do it later. You've got to submit to the leadership in the church now, or you will not be allowed to be a leader in the church or the work or God's kingdom later. It's just that simple. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous? Why do you go down the street to some unrighteous judge, some carnal man down the street? And not before the saints. We in God's church are trying to administer justice rightly. And you need to have faith that Christ will guide that. Do you not know that the, that the saints will judge the world? Now the Catholic have these saints of someone, you know, I don't need to explain all that. They find someone who's had a sort of a fake miracle and they see a shining a crucifix or blood on the something or other and they think that's a saint. We know that every true Christian is a saint. Every true Christian who has God's Spirit. The saints will judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So we're to judge the things that pertain to this life in the church. Notice, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, why... It's worded as a question, as the Greek scholars admit. Why do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Why do you go outside? Why do you get a carnal judge to take charge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? And in the Old Testament, they appointed judges and in the New Testament, we appoint ministers, and ministers in the church are to make those basic decisions about problems, and the brethren can realize that Christ is in charge. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? You ought to trust Christ to lead his church. Have respect for the ministry in straightening things out and in doing the work and so on. That's what God is telling you again and again. And I want to mention right here, brethren, before I forget, and I hope you'll all tell your friends, please tell them this. I'm not here today because of the bad weather, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, I have appointed two men, and Mr. Ames has as well, Mr. Bob League and Mr. Rod McNair, are the associate pastors. And I want to ask all of you who have a problem and need counseling or judgment about divorce and remarriage or whatever it is, go to them. Go to Mr. Mr. League or Mr. Rod McNair and let them, if they need to farm it out to some of the other younger ministers or someone else, that's fine. But at least they have an idea and they cooperate continually with one another of what's going on and it can help the church as a whole. So if you have a situation, go to Mr. League or go to Mr. McNair and go to them, and then once in a while they can have someone else do it. And if there's an emergency and you think you have to talk to Mr. Ames or me or someone, you can, but it better be an emergency. It ought to be a very important thing. Certainly I'll talk to people, and I have gotten into it recently with some people that I loved and did not want to see fall away. But normally we have them, and I've always had to have one or the other of them help even in those things. Just join me in the counseling. 
so I don't counsel them alone. So understand that. Go to Mr. McNair or Mr. League as these things come up. And I hope that you will respect that. That's your instruction here in the local church. So learn to respect the ministry that Christ has set in His church. Back in Hebrews chapter 13, turn there with me if you would. And again, most of you may know this scripture. Hebrews 13 verse 7. Paul writes, under God's inspiration, remember those who rule over you, not just the civil rulers, he's obviously talking about the ministry, who have spoken the word of God to you. Who's spoken the word of God to you? Main primarily ones in this particular time of recent years is Mr. Ames and me. We are the main ones who have spoken the word of God to you. But remember all the faithful ministers here, such as Dr. Winnell and Mr. McNair and Mr. League and and our other fine ministers coming along. Remember them who spoke in the Word, whose faith follow. Follow their approach. Honor that approach. None of us are drunkards. None of us are adulterers. None of us are going off on some wild speculation. I think you know that. Whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. We've had some ministers in the past and worldwide who were not faithful and who had problems. They pretty soon left or got kicked out, and God made that very obvious. And most of the brethren, long before they got kicked out, realized they should not be followed as far as their attitude. Turn to verse 17. Obey those. If we're in an office in the church of God, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. We're going to give an account to God if we botch it. And God holds us accountable to lead the church in the right way. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. Don't be hard heads and constantly fighting the ministry, arguing with the ministry, trying to undermine the ministry. Brethren, if you deeply respect the ministry that Christ has put in the church... You won't be trying to argue about all kinds of strange doctrines all the time. Every few years, some of this stuff comes up as though it's something new. And people start arguing about sacred names. We've got to learn to speak Hebrew. No, we don't. The New Testament's not in Hebrew. And then they'll come up arguing about how to count Pentecost, how to count Passover. They'll come and argue about even things like polygamy. Well, God allowed the ancient Israelites to be polygamous. Some of the men had more than one wife. Yes, under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, he allowed even King David to fight and kill people in battle because it was a different time. And Christ said, in the beginning, it was not so. Talking about a man being able to divorce and remarry and things like that. There was, There is a difference in the new covenant. But I want to tell all of you, if you are converted and if you understand the mind of God, you will not try to come to deep set conclusions on those peripheral things and assume you've come up with something new. It's come up again and again and again from the earliest days I came to Ambassador College. I'm not lying. People came in saying, I'm Elijah. And I argued with them and said, no, you're not. <laughs> Even then back then. And some were talking about polygamy. And well, I think I need a second wife and blah, blah, blah. And some were talking about Mr. Armstrong didn't know how to count Passover or whatever. Well, he did know how, and we still know how. The ministry does know those things, and God will show us that we're wrong, but it's not up to every Tom, Dick, and Harry 
to decide whether we should speak sacred names or whether we should try to have a second or third or fourth wife by your own reasoning. There is a church, and the church of God functions as God's government, God's leadership, and Christ, frankly, again, I need to say it, Christ is watching all of us. He is wanting to build a faithful, loyal team of individuals that he can put some of you on Alpha Centauri, some on Pluto, some on Neptune, some on stars out there that have not even been named yet. Say, you're in charge, and he'll know that you are conquered by God, that you will do what God says. You will have proved to him that you want to be part of his government in a loyal way, a righteous way, a sound-minded way. So try to do that, brethren, with all your heart. Well, let's turn to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, brethren, and notice what God instructs us here. I'm going to begin in verse 5. In the first few verses, he's talking about the elders ruling over the saints as shepherds, not dictators. But in chapter 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, you younger people in the church, and of course the other brethren who are not elders, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And my brethren, I really mean this. This is the key attitude above all others in a sense. Everyone that's ever had a real deep problem and wouldn't repent was not humble. I want what I want, and this is what I think, and I've already proved this, and I'm not going to listen. And blah, blah, blah. That attitude has always come up. And I can start naming person after person after person, even in the ministry who got into trouble because of that, students, workmen, the attitude of self-will who are not sincerely humble, trying to listen to the leadership, trying to be humble before God and do what God says. Try to have that attitude of profound humility. As you've heard me say before, I don't have it perfectly and none of us do. But try to pray to God to help you have this attitude to where you come to the thing, the place you want with all your heart to think like God thinks, to feel like God feels, and to want what God wants. With all your heart, ask God to help you think like God thinks, to feel like God feels, and to want what God wants. Here I am, 82 and a half years, and have had a stroke and other things. I've got to tell God, which I have many, frankly, a few dozen times in the last year or two, if it's best for the work, let me go to sleep. I've been given six fine children. I've been given ten grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. I've gone around the world a couple times. What more do I need? You know, you'd always like, I still haven't seen Alaska, and I haven't seen South America. I've talked to Mario about having a conference down there and going with him. You always want to keep going, of course. But there's nothing that I need that I haven't been given. Nothing. And I thank God for that. So if God says, Meredith, it's time to check out. Okay, Father, thanks for the 82 and a half years. That's what I'd better feel, like God feels and want what God wants. Because that's what's going to be best. It really is, brethren. It really, really is. Think about it in your life, your attitude. I want this and I want it my way. I got my feelings hurt, whatever it is. Get over it. 
Ask God to help you think like He thinks about it, to feel like He feels about it. And God tells you to forgive your neighbor from your heart and to want what He wants. So He says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you. When? Tomorrow? No. In due time, in His time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be alert, brethren. Don't give in to the devil and all the stuff that comes swirling into your mind, wrong attitudes you have to fight. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he devour. He's doing that. He's trying to get right in here at some of the departments in this work right now and upset people and upset them and stir them up and stir them up through self-will and vanity. Satan is trying to strike at God's work. Don't let him get you. He's going around like a roaring lion seeking who may devour. Resist him. Fight him. Fight hard. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, they go through the same type of thing, but they don't know what to do. But may the God of all grace, who called you not to, but into his glory. He's called you into that to share that glory, that eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you have suffered, yes, we do all through trials first. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Fight the good fight of faith. Never give up. Overcome through Christ in you. And you can make it. And through Christ in you, you will make it. So the true, humble, truly humble and submissive Christians are going to be in God's kingdom. And they are the ones who will be protected and blessed forever. They will be protected. They will be blessed because they have given their lives to God, and they mean it. I hope you all mean it.